What do you do when you have something of great value? How does your mindset change when you come into possession of something of significance? Certainly, this thought must have run through your head at some point. Uh, When you receive maybe your first paycheck or a large sum of money, what did you do with it? How did you treat it? Did you throw it in the back seat and kind of forget about it, or did you, did you take care of it? Or maybe when you received your first driver's license, when you were finally proven to be old enough and, and responsible enough to get behind the wheel, what did you do when you received that license? Did you throw it in a junk drawer somewhere, or did you tuck it safely in your wallet or your purse and, and guard it? to show everybody that you were indeed adult enough to get behind the wheel. When you come into something of great value, how does your mindset change? Uh, Thinking back to uh, 11 years ago this past Monday, my wife Tracy and I received something of great value, at least great value to us. On August 5th, 2008, we checked into Mid-Michigan Regional Medical Center at 7 a.m. and By 5.45 p.m., they handed us a brand new baby girl. Uh, It was one of the best days of my life. Uh, She came into the world screaming and crying and not really sleeping, uh, but she was ours. Uh, After several years of of hardship and heartache, uh, God gave us a gift of great value. Uh, This baby girl changed our lives in many ways. Uh, We no longer had our personal private space, everything was open. Uh, We no longer slept through the night, and my wife would remind you that we means that she no longer slept through the night. We had the privilege of buying diapers and buying baby clothes and questionable looking food, and, and it was great, and we valued this good gift from God. One of the major things that I discovered as a new dad is I had the desire to guard and to protect my precious daughter. Right from the start, I wanted to make sure that nothing would harm her. So I made sure the car seat was installed and and, and properly taken care of. I, I drove home very cautiously, Uh, on guard against those reckless new drivers with their brand new license in case they dared to exceed 25 miles per hour. Uh, When we arrived home, she was under 24-hour constant audio and video surveillance. Uh, We went full-on 1984 Big Brother FBI style. Um, And perhaps our current living condition is God's ironic sense of humor and uh, retribution. But anything and everything that could be a potential threat to my daughter, I wanted to eliminate. I wanted to guard her. I wanted to protect her. God gave me something of great value. I wanted to guard this thing of great value. Many of you can relate to this, right? Even if you are not a parent, you can relate to getting something of great value and wanting to guard that. What do you do when you realize that God has given you something of infinite value? How do you guard that? How do you protect that? 
How do you do it well? And, and what are some of the pitfalls that you might run into? That is what we are going to see in our passage this morning. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to 1 Timothy 3, chapter 3, verse 14. We will be reading this morning through chapter 4, verse 5. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. This is the holy, inerrant, sufficient word of our God. The main point we see in the passage today, and the main point of the sermon this morning is this. The community... The church is a community formed by God to guard and uphold the truth. The church is a community formed by God to guard and to uphold the truth. We see this idea as we walk through the verses this morning. Our our outline then will follow this and will show the the ways in which the church guards the truth, the ways in which the church upholds the truth. Uh, The first way is that we conform to Scripture. The first part of the passage shows that the church guards and upholds the truth by conforming to Scripture. The second thing we see is that we do this by confessing Christ. The church confesses Christ. And third, we condemn false teaching. The church guards and upholds the truth by condemning false teaching. So so verses 14 to 15 of chapter 3, we see the first way in which the church guards and upholds the truth. Conform to Scripture. The church conforms to Scripture. Paul makes it clear here that the church is concerned that he is concerned that God is concerned with the structure and actions of the church. God cares that the church guards the truth and that they behave in a way that commends the gospel message. In verse 14 again it says, "I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one it how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. God gave directions to his church regarding the structure of the church and regarding the actions of its members. In this letter so far, Paul has relayed these instructions and he has done this to Timothy to build up Timothy and to build up the church in Ephesus. Uh, through the first two and a half chapters, he's, he's laid this out before them. Before we get into what he has said, um, I want to I pause here and, and recognize a simple but important truth that we see here in the text. 
We see Paul desiring to be with these brothers and sisters, though they are far apart. In his absence, Paul is relaying this message to them, assuming that they will carry out this message in faith, that they will carry out the commands of our Lord. Let us note that the church does not rise and fall with a particular person. Right? It is not dependent upon a singular man. The church is dependent upon God. Now, Paul does not say, wait for me. I will be right there and then we will, we will get this thing going together. Now, wait for me. He, he doesn't say that. He gives instructions to Timothy. He relays the word of God to Timothy and trusts that God's people will flourish in the church without him. This, this is a good reminder to us that, that we do not place our hope in man. We place our hope in God. A, a pastor might be a dynamic speaker. He might be a loving shepherd. He might be a faithful servant and a good man. But at the end of the day, he is merely a man. Now, we do not place our trust in men. We place our trust in God. Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. And Jesus will build his church. So, so even as we gather to de- together today, even as we assemble and covenant together as a local church, we recognize that leaders may come and leaders may go, but God remains. God does, does not need charming, charismatic leaders. God needs faithful men and women. God needs faithful men to, to pastor his church. He needs faithful followers of Jesus to be his church. He needs faithful under-shepherds because Jesus will always be there as the good shepherd. He will provide for his people. Now, Paul delayed in coming to Timothy, but God did not delay in building his church. Therefore, in his absence, Paul communicates these truths to Timothy regarding behavior in the church and, and roles within the church. God bestowed his divine truth upon his people. And here, Paul describes the church as a pillar of truth and a buttress of truth. Uh, this, this language that he's using in verse 14 and 15, this is familiar language with his audience here. Uh, they, would, they would well understand what a pillar and a buttress is. This, this even harkens back to the Jewish temple. Uh, the pillar would be uh, something that uh, raises the structure up and, and extends it high above for all to see. And the buttress is a supporting structure. Usually this is, this is an arched structure. And it would give support and give stability um, and, and, and protection to the wall. Uh, the, the church then, he says, is a pillar of truth holding up truth for all to see. The church is a buttress of truth supporting this truth and, and, and protecting this truth from outside pressure. This is the function of the church presented here in this passage. This is uh, what he says the church is to do. This is the first way that the church guards then and protects this truth by, by conforming to Scripture, by shaping itself according to God's revealed truth. All right, so, so what exactly does Paul include in his letter? What are we to guard here? He says, uh, I am writing these things to you 
so that. All right, he's, I'm writing these things to you. So when you see phrases like, like these things as you read your Bible, it is critical that you identify what he's referencing. What is he saying? I'm writing you these things. And, and then the phrase so that indicates that's the, the, the purpose. That's why he's writing this letter to you. Here he says the purpose is to teach them how they ought to behave in the household of God. All right, so, so what are these things? What has he been teaching them in the first two and a half chapters? I think it's important to understand the context uh, in which the book itself was written. What has he been teaching them so far? You guys have, have been looking at this the last month or so, right? So first, Timothy says, uh, in the, in, or Paul says in the first chapter of Timothy that uh, he should instruct the church in sound doctrine and hold fast to the true faith. Uh, secondly, he says that the church should pray for all peoples. Uh, third, in chapter 2, he tells them they are to act lovingly and in self-control, both men and women in their various roles. And finally, in, in the beginning of chapter 3, he instructs the church to appoint qualified elders and deacons. Uh, he calls for the church to appoint men as elders who have godly character and the ability to teach God's word. Uh, these, these qualities mark an elder as someone who is uniquely qualified to shepherd God's people, to, to lead them in the study of the word, and to lead them in prayer. Uh, additionally, he instructs the church to appoint deacons. Uh, these are men and women with similar godly character traits, and, and God calls them to serve the needs of the assembly. Uh, elders leading and teaching with deacons serving in the various ways, that's that's the structure, that's the, the organization of the church that the New Testament is, is, is calling God's people to. This is, this is Paul's purpose in writing the letter. According to these verses, it is to instruct them how they ought to behave in the household of God. All right, so he unpacks these four categories, the, the teaching, praying, uh, the, the behavior in the church, and appointing elders and deacons, and the church conforms to this. The church shapes itself by this. The church conforms itself to scripture, submits to what they are saying. Uh, thankfully for you and for me, this is not a sermon on the first three books of Timothy. Uh, you guys have done that the last month or so. We don't have, have time for all of, to dive into all of this this morning, but, but as a church, we should be deliberate and intentional as we think through these categories in conforming ourselves to God's word. Do we value and take seriously God's command to teach sound doctrine and refute false teaching? Are we praying for all peoples? Are we behaving in a way that is, that is not quarrelsome, but, but loving one another? Are, are we taking God's command to train up and appoint elders and deacons? Seriously, is that, is that something that, that we are conforming to as a church? Uh, maybe by way of application, you could take some time to reflect this week our, on how you are doing there. Am, am, am I yielding to this command in God's word in, in all areas? Uh, am I praying for my pastors this week as they study scripture and as they prepare to teach sound doctrine I cannot stress this one enough. Are you praying for your pastors? Are you praying for Doug as he labors in the word to understand it and to apply it? 
well to this congregation. Pray for him. Encourage him. His primary task is to labor in the word and to labor in prayer. And this is a spiritual battle for him. This is a spiritual battle for all of your pastors here. Pray for them. Reflect on how you are helping and encouraging the deacons of this church. There are many deacons here that serve well, that sacrifice their time and, and desire to serve the church. Are you making their task easier? Uh, how might the body benefit from additional involvement in your life? Uh, pray for your deacons and, and help them in their role. Uh, ask yourself, am I submitting to God's word here? Yielding to his word and, and the role that he might have for me to serve here? Am I seeking to bring unity to the body, or am I acting and speaking in ways that are quarrelsome and antithetical to the unity of this church? Uh, am I acting in ways that Paul describes in 1 Timothy, building up the body, or, or am I importing my own thoughts and my own ideas and my own agenda? Uh, pray for your pastors. Pray for your deacons. Help them. As we see Paul's purpose in this letter, let us be a church that behaves as one ought, in the household of God. Let us, let us uphold true doctrine and refute false teaching. Let us pray. Let us be a praying people for all. Let us act lovingly toward one another in self-control in the various roles that God has given the men and women of this church. Let us organize ourselves intentionally conforming to what we see in the word. Let us disciple one another and seek to imitate Christ, just as Timothy is being encouraged to do here. This is how we ought to behave in the household of God. We conform to God's word. The church guards and upholds the truth. It is a pillar of truth. It is a buttress of truth. The first way it does this is by conforming to scripture. The second way it does this is by confessing Christ. Verse 16, we confess Christ. Now let us read that verse again. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. All right, if there is one verse that you are going to take away from this sermon this morning, let it be this one. There are famous 316 verses in the Bible, right? So John 316, for God so loved the world. Second Timothy 316, like all scripture is breathed out by God. Uh, even Colossians 316, let the word of God dwell in you richly. Uh, however, I'm convinced that this, this verse, this 316, does not get enough airplay. Uh, let us consider and, and, and pause here and dwell on the riches and truths that we see in 1 Timothy 3.16. It is a beautiful hymn placed right in the middle of this section of scripture. It describes the life of Jesus here. It is a short, concise summary of what Christians believe about the person of Jesus Christ. Now, it proclaims Jesus, the mystery of godliness that is now revealed for us in full, high-definition clarity, this side of the cross. Jesus was manifested in the flesh. This is a reference 
to the incarnation of God, to God becoming man. Uh, Dwell on that for a moment. God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, the one through whom and the one for whom all things were made, this Jesus took on flesh. Our divine, everlasting, glorious God came down to us. He dwelt among us. He identified with us. Uh, Truly God, truly man, this Jesus was manifest in the flesh. Let us, let us not throw that aside but, and, and not forget um, what a sacrifice simply coming and dwelling among us was. He left the glory of the Father and came and took on a human form, took on human flesh. This is a sacrifice for him. Let us, let us remember that. Jesus was manifested in the flesh. And then Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. This is a reference to the resurrection of Christ. Jesus came to dwell with us and and he lived a perfect life. He never violated God's law, but all he did and said was in perfect obedience to the Father. Even so, he was wrongly convicted by wicked men. He was condemned to die. He was executed. It was on the cross that Jesus then took on the wrath of God towards sinful man. Every sin committed by God's people was placed upon Jesus on that cross. And and though he had done nothing wrong, he took on himself the punishment that we deserve, that you deserve. God's righteous wrath was placed upon the holy spotless son. He died, he was buried, but on the third day, he rose from the grave. The grave could not hold him. He rose victorious over sin and over death. His resurrection exposed the sinfulness of his accusers and his executioners. He stands before the world alive and glorified. He was vindicated by the power of the Spirit in his resurrection. He was vindicated by the Spirit and then he was seen by angels. This is This is not a hidden glorification. This is not a a hidden vindication. This is a visible and public and available for everyone to see, both on earth and in the heavenly realm. Jesus Christ is alive, and angelic beings have witnessed this cosmic victory won by our Lord. Jesus was seen by angels, and then Jesus was proclaimed among the nations. This gospel, this good news, spread quickly. Jesus Christ, the long-prophesied Messiah, came into the world, fulfilled God's righteous demands for you by living a perfect life. He, he took God's wrath due to you upon himself on the cross. He provided atonement for your sin. He rose to new life by vindicating power of the Spirit, and he is alive even today. This is the good news that was pre- proclaimed to the world. And it was not just proclaimed to the world, but Jesus was believed on in the world. It was not just proclaimed, it was received in faith. This good news is not merely for first century Jews. This is not uh, merely um, an isolated religion. This is for all of mankind. This is not something that those in the West believe Jesus was not from the West, right? This, this is not our religion. This is good news for the world. 
God's people come from every tribe and tongue and nation on earth. Jesus was believed on in the world. And here it said, Jesus was taken up into glory. Jesus, having fulfilled the will of the Father, having made atonement for sin, was taken up into glory to rule and to reign as King Jesus. He is taken up um, and sat down at the right hand of the Father, and one day he will come back. He will judge the world in righteousness. He is exercising his sovereign power over all things. Jesus was taken up into glory. This hymn, this 316, should drive you to a response. Jesus himself called to us, telling telling us that the only way to God is through himself. These, These truths about him should elicit Uh, in us repentance and faith in Christ. This message of Jesus is not merely history. Certainly his resurrection is a historical fact that the church is built upon, that is foundational for us, but it is not merely the historicity of this fact that that is important, but the implications of this event. Uh, If Christ is risen from the dead, if this true, we can have full confidence that all that he said is true and right. I mean, he calls us to admit that we cannot be good enough in ourselves. He calls us to repent of our sin, to, to, to admit that we have broken God's law, and to trust in him as our only way to be reconciled to God. He calls us to take up our cross and to follow him, to trust him, to put all of our eggs in that basket, to rely upon him. If, if you are not a Christian, these truths might seem strange to you. Uh, they might be brand new or perhaps you don't uh, fully understand what we're talking about. And I encourage you, if that's the case, then please speak with me or any one of the church members here afterwards and we would love to have that conversation with you this is the most important truth that you will hear from God's word Jesus is our savior if you're a Christian already if you already embrace these truths they should have a constant and continual impact on you this is this is not just Christianity 101 but this is the fuel that keeps us coming back to our Lord that keeps us falling down in repentance before him, that keeps us trusting him by faith. This gospel should not be boring for us, but rather this should be what powers the Christian life. Remind yourselves of these glorious truths regularly. Be be searching the scriptures and pouring this into your mind. You did not deserve this. I did not deserve this, but God gave this to you. Uh, praise him for this. Uh, we, should, we should be reminding of this, and, and, and maybe you can even start today by committing this 316 to memory. This is a good one to recall. Uh, this should drive us to repentance and faith, and that should lead us to praise and worship. We praise God for all he has done in Jesus Christ, and we worship him as the holy, uncreated one. He has dwelt among us. He has suffered and died for us. He was risen and appeared to us. 
he rules and he reigns over us. Praise that God. Let us worship him as his people with joy. This is what it means for the church to confess Christ. This is not a comprehensive list of everything that we believe, but this is a non-negotiable list, a non-negotiable confession that Christians for 2,000 years have proclaimed. God revealed this truth to mankind, sending his own son to us in the flesh. He, he gave us uh, this, he gave this to the church, and we confess this. We confess these things about our Christ, and we uphold this truth. If we ignore this truth, if we turn a blind eye to this truth, to what God has revealed to the person and work of Christ, or if we deny portions of this confession, uh, we are in great danger. God created all things good, but if you, uh, but you don't have to be a genius to look around the world and recognize that all things are not good. I think even back to the mass shootings we saw a week ago, things are bad. I mean, things are, are, are bad. We see the effects of sin. We see the effects of sin. It results in death. It results in real horrific uh, death. Our rebellion against God has brought sin into this world. And, and even worse than the temporal death that we will all experience is the eternal death that uh, stands before us if we die apart from experiencing God's grace in our lives. We are guilty. Every one of us. All of us. We are guilty of sin. We have all violated God's law. We are all deserving of his righteous wrath. You, me, all of us, we are all in this boat. But God provided a way to be made right with him. It is not by doing a bunch of good things. That will never erase the wrong things that you have done. It is only about what Jesus has done for you. About what Jesus has done. If you repent of your sin and turn to him in faith and follow him. This good confession about Christ's life and death and resurrection is essential to the message of reconciliation and and forgiveness. If, if you deny the main tenets of the Christian faith, you, you cut off all of hope of finding God. Now, we don't, uh, we don't say this arrogantly or with pride, like we are smart enough to, 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 to find out the one truth, but rather we say this in humble submission to the Creator God, uh, to our Lord Jesus Christ, who has revealed Himself to us. This is the Jesus in whom we place our trust. Turn to Christ in repentance and faith. Bow to Christ in praise and worship. Yield your lives to serving him and and then share this Christ with those who have not heard. This is how the church confesses Christ. This is how the truth is held high. In this scripture, we see the church guards and upholds the truth. We do this by conforming our church structure to Scripture. We do this by confessing Christ. And then at the beginning of chapter 4, we see we do this by condemning false teaching. Condemning false teaching. Let's look again at at verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, 
Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. In this section, Paul discusses the nature of false teaching and, and how the church buttresses the truth against such deceptions. Now, here Paul does not pull any punches. He, he does not um, put on kid gloves. Right? He's dealing with them, them directly, uh, with those who would distort or add to the gospel. We don't know all of the details of their false teaching here, but it's very likely it is, it is linked to the poor teaching of the law that Paul referenced in chapter 1. Uh, we don't uh, see everything about it, but we do see some of, of the, a few of the specifics here that they are, they are distorting. Uh, it deals with forbidding marriage, and it deals with dietary restrictions. We see some similar things pop up in other letters from Paul, especially regarding the food laws um, and, and, and its relation to Old Covenant restrictions. And and whether or not this is dealing with that exact situation, that's not entirely clear, um, but he lumps it here with a, a restriction on marriage or, or uh, forbidding marriage. And, and so that's probably not quite the case. It's probably something a little different. Uh, but in any event, these false teachers are, are adding to the gospel. Um, in this, Paul um, utterly rejects their assertions, and, and he reminds them of some foundational things that we should consider about false teaching and false teachers. First thing is false teaching and false teachers are deceitful. Now, they are not what they seem to be. They, they do not guard the truth, but they use deception to draw people away from the truth. He said specifically that they devote themselves to deceitful spirits, to the teaching of demons, and that they are insincere liars. He is not interacting with them softly, but, but dealing directly with them and, and their evil motives. They are not who they profess to be, and they, they deceive those who are following after their teaching. Right, even as we recognize these truths about deceitful men, Paul reminds us that, that false teachers here are um, both victims and victimizers. They are uh, deceived themselves by demonic spiritual forces, and, and their consciences have been seared. Uh, even as we hold these false teachers accountable for the evil that they are teaching, um, we recognize this is not merely a matter of, of bad people, but this is, this is spiritual warfare, uh, the type that Paul references in Ephesians chapter 6. He reminds us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil, evil in the heavenly places. These false teachers victimize those who are exposed to their teaching, and they are, themselves are victims of this present evil darkness. The deception of these false teachers is something that should be taken seriously. How do false teachers operate? Well, we see here that they are adding to the commands of Scripture. They are promoting, in this case, some sort of strange asceticism, denying and, and restricting 
um, they're followers of good things that God has given to mankind. Uh, we're not talking about teaching rightly and, and, and clearly about sin, but we are talking about teaching, uh, false teachers teaching from their own warped opinions. They have taken two things that God has created good, that God has declared good, and they are adding to the commands of Scripture. They are forbidding marriage. Uh, certainly this is a good and precious gift from our Father. Right? He created the bond of marriage for us, and, and he declared this good in Genesis chapter 2 before the fall. We learn, moreover, that in the New Testament, that, that marriage is, is a, a picture. Right? Marriage points to the truths that we see in the gospel. We see that, that the, the husband should sacrificially love his wife, just as Christ sacrificially loved the church. It, it pictures or portrays the gospel, this, this union of Christ to the church. And, and certainly not everyone is commanded to, to marry. In, in fact, um, at other times, Paul commends singleness. Right? Paul himself is single, and it is good to, to, to be single. Um, but to forbid marriage is to forbid the good gift that God has given to his creation. And it, and it undercuts the gospel message that is, that is like built into that very institution. In addition, they're, they're, uh, the false teachers are ordering the church to abstain from certain foods. And this is something that he expressly rejects, right? Not just here, but, but in other letters. If you go back to the beginning, God made everything and declared it good. He gave it to mankind, gave us food to eat that was good. Under the old covenant, he, he commanded Israel several things in order to have them be distinct from the culture, to be distinctly his people. Some of these laws did include dietary restrictions. However, under the new covenant, under, under, under Christ, God's people are no longer bound to this law, but are now operating under the law of Christ. Uh, to bind someone's conscience to extra-biblical commands undercuts the grace that we have been given in Christ. We receive God's good gifts with thanksgiving and with prayer, recognizing that all good things come from the Father. All right, so by way of application this morning, we should look outwardly and we should look inwardly. Looking outwardly, how are we protecting ourselves from false teachers? How are you protecting yourself from falling prey to the deceit of false teachers? How do you recognize false teachers and false teaching? How are you guarding yourself from this deception? The primary way you do this is to soak yourself in God's word. Now read through it. Pray over it. Discuss it with other believers. Memorize some of it. Devour it. Know it well. So when you hear false teaching, when you hear someone that teaches something that contradicts it, you can recognize that. You say, I, I, I see in the Bible that this does not line up. Sit under the preaching and teaching of good, godly men that accords with the word that you were reading. Pastor Doug and Pastor Richard are good, godly men that seek to preach and teach the word with integrity. And I know they will tell you the same thing. Check what they say against God's word. 
Men are not above error, right? We submit to the standard, to the one thing we know does not have error. We submit to God's word, and, and in doing this, we are better able to uncover false teaching. We should have a bit of a, uh, like a healthy skepticism. When we listen to false teachers, we should check, uh, when we listen to any teacher, we should check what they say against the word of God. Uh, we, we don't do this with a haughty spirit or an arrogant spirit. We don't, we don't do this hunting for heresy uh, or looking to stir up quarrels and division, but, but rather we do this with a heart that is submissive to God and seeking to honor him, to understand him rightly as he has revealed himself to us in the word. We do this in brotherly love, and, and we do this understanding that we ourselves might be the ones in error. We submit to God's word. Uh, looking outwardly, we are on guard against false teaching by looking to God's word. Looking inwardly, uh, we should be asking this question a little bit differently. Am I showing this legalistic tendency? We should recognize here that this is dangerous. This should not be taken lightly. Paul calls out this legalism, this adding to the gospel, and he, he describes it as false teaching. The specific examples that he used might sound silly or foreign to us. Like, like we're not going to listen to someone who forbids marriage. That sounds cultish, right? Um, or, or, or someone who tries to deny me eating bacon. That's probably not going to happen. But we should be careful because we have this same tendency. Extending our own opinions. Drawing extra biblical conclusions from what God has declared. As the church, we stand united in the gospel. We proclaim this truth together loudly. And we agree as members to a statement of faith. To say this is what we believe the Bible teaches. This is what we believe is true, that, that is revealed in God's word. Uh, and, and in addition, we rightly call sin, sin. We don't step back from that. We, we see this all over scripture, and, and we affirm truths from God. Calling someone out in sin is not legalism. That's not legalism. That's biblical Christianity. And as members, we agree to a covenant with one another. Right, on how we will live together, how we will help one another, how we will spur one another on to love and good deeds, how we will live as a community together based on the principles that we see laid out, laid out in Scripture. Even as we do all of this, we do not take a dogmatic stance about things that are unclear in God's Word. In what ways, in what ways am I showing this tendency? I, I think we all do this. Right? I think we all fall prey to this at times. This is a good question to ask yourself. And, and it's a good question to maybe even discuss this with one of your friends that you trust. Because we all have blind spots to this. Uh, personal convictions and acting according to biblically informed consciences is, is good and right. And, and, and even as we see that, our personal conclusions are not always God's word. Right? Those are, those are um, often things that we, that we see and are convinced of as we apply it, um, but we do not draw extra-biblical commands and press those upon others. Now, there are many examples in how we can fall into this ditch. 
what type of music or movies I, I consume or um, what clothing is appropriate to wear or, or how you spend your time and your talent and your money or what political causes do you get involved in. Um, all of that should be informed by biblical principles, but there is a lot of areas in this, and, and I would say often this requires wisdom and application of biblical principles. There are areas that are not always crystal clear, and we need to read God's word and apply these principles on a case-by-case basis, and we need to be patient and loving with those who may come to different conclusions on some of these things. Laying down a legalistic checklist for yourself and others is uh, making the same mistake that we see here in 1 Timothy. We dare not put ourselves in the place of God, requiring from men what God has not required from us. Uh, We don't twist God's word to dodge the commands that we see in Scripture, but we don't add to his word to conform it to our own opinions. False teaching should not be taken lightly. And and even as we, as a church, affirm salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, what we do and what we say can undermine that good confession. Legalism can undercut this good confession. What is the effect of this false teaching? First, it it dishonors God, and second, uh, by cheapening his grace, and, and, and secondly, it robs us of our joy in Christ. It dishonors God by saying, what is right and good is not enough, that it, is, that it is even somehow bad for us. It sets up the false teacher in the place of God, determining what is good and what is, what is bad for God's creation. Uh, we are not in the place of God, and we do not get to determine what is right and wrong. Rather, rather we submit to the word. When we set ourselves up in this way, it dishonors him by assuming his role, and, and it dishonors him by downplaying the gospel and upholding the actions of men. Uh, The gospel rightly declares that there is nothing that you can do to be good enough for God. Uh, Jesus, in your place, is righteous. That is something you cannot earn. Legalism, on the other hand, holds up the actions of man, adding to the finished work of Christ. It dishonors God, and it is diametrically opposed to the gospel. False teaching dishonors God, and and false teaching robs us of our joy in Christ. Binding uh, our consciences to extra-biblical commands, it steals our joy. We are no longer resting in Christ. We are concerned with the commands and expectations of men. There There is no joy to be found here, but only restless effort and relentless guilt. There is a reason that legalism is especially dangerous in the church. At some point, you will realize you cannot possibly be good enough. And there is no hope. How do we combat this then? How do do we combat this false teaching? Let us be a church who rests in the gospel of Christ. Jesus came to earth in the flesh. He lived a perfect life. He was killed, buried. He was he rose again. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He appeared to many. The gospel was preached to the nations and believed on in the world. Jesus ascended into heaven where he sat down with his finished work. He rested at the right hand of the Father. We rest in the gospel recognizing that we cannot ourselves atone from our sin. But Jesus did for you. 
Don't place yourself under a yoke you cannot possibly bear, but rest in the one who bore all things for you. Rest in Jesus. In this short passage, Paul reminds us of what the church is and what the church does. Uh, The church is a pillar and buttress of truth, holding up the gospel of Jesus and guarding it well. The church does this by ordering herself according to the word of God, conforming to scripture. The church does this by embracing and declaring the truths of the gospel, confessing Christ. And the church does this by rebuking error, condemning false teaching. And all of this does, all of this is done so that the good God of the universe is glorified and the name of Jesus is held high. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for who you are and for what you have done. You are a good God who has made all things. You have formed your church, your people, and have entrusted us to the truth in your word. We bow as your people, submitting to this word. We confess as your church the supremacy of Christ in all things. And we guard this truth, holding fast to your word against false teaching. Help us to do this well, to to glorify you in all of our thoughts and words and deeds. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.